Hello, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Parallax Podcast. In this episode, Zach Hepburn and I will take a deep dive into the filmography of master filmmaker Martin Scorsese. Cinephiles in Melbourne can get an extra dose of Scorsese currently at Acme with their new Scorsese exhibition. An exhibition that will be like crack to fans of the filmmaker, as you'll find a crazy amount of rather impressive ephemera covering his entire career. Martin Scorsese is the most successful filmmaker to come out of a group of pioneering 1970s American filmmakers labelled the Movie Brats. And yes, I'm aware that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are considered part of that group too, but I'm going to say Scorsese is easily the most important name in the bunch. So kick back and enjoy this dig through the films of Martin Scorsese. Joining me now is Zach Hepburn to discuss some of the films of Martin Scorsese. Zach, welcome. Thank you, sir. I'm very happy to be here talking about Marty. I love all things Marty. At heart, I am a, a neurotic New Yorker. So uh, I, I feel that. I feel that a lot when yeah. I kind of hang out with you. I feel like I'm hanging out with Martin Scorsese a bit here. So Yeah, well, you know, Martin Scorsese by way of uh, Larry David. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's, that's a perfect yeah, indication. Yeah. That's my, Zach Hepburn in a nutshell. My hairline's slightly thinning. Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's kind of start at the very beginning of Scorsese's career. Mm-hmm. And he started off with a, a couple of films. He started off with Who's That Knocking at My Door and Boxcar Bertha, which were two films that he kind of squeezed out of the beginning of his career. Boxcar Bertha in particular, he made with Roger Corman. In the early 70s, there was a lot of filmmakers that started with Roger Corman, and Scorsese was one of them. And he's got Mr. Carradine, of course, uh, David Carradine, uh, Barbara Hershey. Um, it's, it's a really interesting sort of like, you, you know, you, you look at Corman's career as the sort of great mimicker of of content and you know boxcar bertha obviously was sort of born out of the bonnie and clyde yes uh new hollywood era and it, it is an amazing sort of pastiche of of all that sort of uh very late 60s uh you know emerging uh, hollywood independent scene so it, it's an interesting time capsule i think the film i must admit i i do regularly re- revisit a lot of scorsese films but i don't regularly revisit Boxcar Bertha. I've seen it a couple times, and that's been sort of it for me. I think it, it's a film that's very much of its time, I'm, and, and that's about it. I think. Yeah, I'm a bit the same. I mean, it all did start with his next film in 1973, Mean Streets, which was the film that that everyone remembers him for, yeah. and that was the film that really kicked off his career. I mean, I it's also the uh, kind of instigator of the De Niro uh, collaboration, and also the you know kind of following on from the Keitel collaboration from Who's That Knocking on My Door. Um, but Main Street really sort of reminds me too, in some ways, of the sort of claustrophobia that some of Scorsese's early short films had, particularly The Big Shave, which yes. I think is an amazing short film. If anyone hasn't seen that, you know, check it out. I think you can find it online. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. And it, yeah. It's one of the most perfect short films from a filmmaker because I think a lot of filmmakers, when they're making shorts, get kind of bogged down with trying to condense, you know, narratives into a short form. Whereas the 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 big shape really just looks at, 
you know, a, essentially a, a central character shedding their own skin uh, through, through through no real reason other than it's there. And Main Street's really kind of feels like that that vice like grip that you feel in that short film uh, played out in feature length form. Because uh, I, I find Main Street's an incredibly claustrophobic film. It's almost like the city is you know choking uh, its central characters. So um, yeah, and it, and it kind of I guess really sets off a lot of themes that. Scorsese followed up on frequently throughout the rest of his career. I mean, like you said, that claustrophobia of a city is very much echoed in Taxi Driver, which was a film that came very soon. I mean, after Mean Streets, he made Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which feels still, looking back, it feels a bit anomalous. It still feels like Scorsese was trying to find out what type of filmmaker he was going to be at that point. Yeah, I think, you know, Alice is almost more interesting in the sort of career lineage of Chris Christopherson yeah, uh, than, yeah, than, than anyone else. Um, because, you know, I think Christopherson's career in the 1970s as a film actor is is really interesting with like stuff like Cisco Pike and, and Heaven's Gate. But for me, again, it's, it's one of those early Scorsese films that I don't really go back to. Um, no, that, it, it, I, It's yeah. just a bit of a sort of, it, it almost feels sort of derivative of, it almost feels like a Peter Bogdanovich film. In, I, I, yeah, in some I'll ways. totally pay that. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, it really does. I mean, it was in 1976 that we got Taxi Driver, which was... A.K.A. Paul Schrader losing his car. Yeah. 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 <laughs> A.K.A. the screenplay written on a Coke bender yeah. over a few days. Yeah. Like yeah. it, And Taxi Driver is the film that, that everyone kind of remembers De Niro for, and it's yeah. the film that I think really kicked off Scorsese's career as, yeah. a, as a true kind of auteur and a, and, a, and a guy that made films that were confronting and yeah. iconoclastic. Do you remember the first time you saw Taxi Driver? Like, do you remember how you saw it? I think, I, yeah, I, VHS. Yep, yep. When I was probably too young to understand what was going on. Yep. I, that's Taxi Driver's been an interesting film as I've grown up. Mm. I've understood it better and differently yep. than when I was probably 16 and, and shouldn't have been watching it yep. because I had no idea what was going on. Yep. But now I kind of watch Taxi Driver and, and I see a degree of complexity and a degree of kind of moral discomfort that, that I never really got. Early on, like I, I think when I was younger watching Taxi Driver, I, I was kind of on De Niro's side a bit, yeah. and, I, yeah. and I shouldn't have been. No. I really shouldn't have been. No, but it's, uh, it's really interesting because I I came to Taxi Driver. I mean, I was obviously interested in in in, in Scorsese's work because I'd seen Goodfellas before I'd seen Taxi Driver. Uh, yeah, I think I think I saw Goodfellas before Taxi Driver and too. I, yeah. I'd also seen a movie called The Crow. Okay. And, you know, forgive this tangent here, but on the Crow soundtrack, how are you going to connect the Crow and Taxi Driver? On the Zach Crow Hepper? soundtrack. There is a Pantera track called The Badge, which has um, a sound bite at the beginning and the end of the track when De Niro's Travis Bickle kills uh, Sport in uh, Taxi Driver. He goes, yes. suck on this, and then shoots him. <laughs> and that starts off the Pantera song. And I always thought when I was listening to this Pantera song, what is that? sound bite from like that's so weird in the middle of the crow soundtrack to have like a non and this is the the heady days of you know quentin tarantino soundtracks where they have dialogue from movies sort of pop up okay, super sounds in exactly. the 70s um so i then discovered that uh, that was from taxi driver ergo i, I rented out taxi driver on vhs as well too but i i think you're totally right i i revisit taxi driver you know consistently i think it's one of those films i watch at least once a year yeah wow okay. and 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 i just, it just seems to happen like you know we, we, we um i program it um quite frequently yes for, for, well, there was um, a really lovely 4k restoration exactly a few years ago yep yeah um and you know seeing it in the cinema screen i know it sounds like a cliche thing to say but seeing it at the cinema screen really does give you a different sort of texture to seeing it on you know home entertainment and i'd agree you know you 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 come to that film really differently as you get older 
and as your sort of viewpoint on life changes, you know, you can be that sort of aggressive teenager and really sort of hit the, the kind of Travis Bickle nihilism that, yes. that, that's evident in the film. But as you sort of like grow older and peel back, there's this incredible, you know, palpable sense of isolation and loneliness in the film, which, yep. you know, um, which is so evident in that scene where he takes Sybil Shepherd to the, to the, the porno theatre by mistake, you know, and, and the, such, and the that's, date, that's one of the most, yeah. aw- it's almost, you know, it's almost David Brentian of how, yeah. how, of how awkward it is. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an incredible film. And I, I know that for a lot of people that is really kind of a touchstone for, for Marty's career. But I think that's, that's one of those films that really is, it, it is a, a complete full stop on that sort of film. Like, there is no other film, I think I can safely say, like Taxi Driver. It's, well, there it, is. Yeah. And, and I don't think Scorsese... I mean, he, he made other films like it. And we'll talk about Bringing Out the Dead later because I think the connections to Taxi Driver are really interesting in mm. that. But in terms of the kind of things like the Bernard Herrmann score that yep. he got in Taxi Driver, yep. which... I mean, we know Scorsese now is this guy that uses soundtrack music in in magnificent ways, unlike other filmmakers. He really kind of set the bar on how to use music. But in terms of like using a full Bernard Herrmann score in Taxi Driver, it created this really interesting Mm. kind of discordancy in terms of a a beautiful classic Hollywood score. Mm in a very 70s film that had, like you said, a really nihilistic backbone to it. And there's this really nifty bit in the middle of the film too. It almost goes into this weird sort of music video of uh, Travis watching um, a dance hall clip with like a Jackson Brown song, uh, Late for the Sky, which just feels so out of place next to the the Bernard Herrmann score. Yeah. Um, But yeah, look, I I think Taxi Driver is uh, without a doubt one one of the greatest films ever made. Oh, and, yeah, and I totally agree. And I think Taxi Driver was kind of the first film that really marked Scorsese as a great filmmaker. That, that and he's made as so we'll Hitchcock, talk about. Yeah, Hitchcock cameo in it too. Like he's yeah. he's in the film twice. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so, and, yeah. and that scene with. Scorsese yep. as the passenger in the taxi cab. He wasn't originally going to no. be in that role. The, no. the actor didn't show up. Yeah, or something he just kind of fell into it, and, and he was just like he took the role. Yeah. And it's a really nasty. It's a really ups- cameo. It's a really like upsetting it's- scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and- but yeah, look, um, I think for for seventies filmmaking um, for Marty, that really is the mic drop. I mean, he followed it up with uh, New York, New York. Well, which- what do you think about that as a follow up? Isn't that a weird follow up? To, to make to Taxi Driver? Because, look, I mean, how often do you revisit New York, New York? I, I Look, I, uh, to be brutally honest with you, only revisited it when I brought it on DVD eons ago when they re-released it. I'd seen it on VHS and yep. then it was obviously re-released on DVD in, in the lush sort of, you know, full widescreen presentation with commentary. It's it's an interesting time capsule, again, of, of that late, era 70s filmmaking if you, if you read you know the sort of uh playbook on that uh easy riders and raising bulls there's a great sort of like uh piece on you know marty as he was just sort of like frantic uh obviously this is a, the, the peak of his uh, drug abuse yeah. time in, in late hollywood and there's these great little, little like fragments of of him and robbie robinson for the band uh, who obviously appears in the last waltz which we'll touch on later uh but you know they would just be up all night on a binge watching, uh, you know, Jean Cocteau films. And th- th- there's a real opulence to New York, New York, yeah. which I think you couldn't get away with nowadays making a film. Like someone would step in and go, no, this, well, this yeah. can't happen anymore. And it's but- interesting. I feel like it's like the, 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 a lot of the movie brats of the 70s, that whole generation of filmmakers, mm. 
went through this period of trying to do their old Hollywood film. I yep. mean, it happened with Coppola. Uh, you yep. got with kind of the Cotton Club, Cotton Club. And, and and a lot of people feel like these are missteps in their career. Mm. And, and and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. They're not great films. No. But they're definitely kind of, you can see them trying to do mm. their old Hollywood film. And you mm. can see Scorsese in New York, New York, trying to kind of ape a Vincent Minnelli film yeah. from kind of the 50s. And He's even like the Busby Berkeley sort yeah. of stuff. I mean, he, you know, I think obviously Scorsese more than anything is a film historian. I mean, he is an encyclopedia of, of film. You know, yes. you, you listen to him speak and you just are absolutely gobsmacked by his recall of, of, of directors or cinematographers. I mean, there's that great documentary series uh, that he looks at Italian cinema yes. uh, of his youth. And it, it, it's really astounding how much he is, you know, a walking filmography of other directors. So, yeah, I think this is certainly something that is just a, a natural progression uh, for him, as it, it is sort of like old style Hollywood on screen. Yes, but I mean, and, but also too, like you know, De Niro's character in that movie is really unlikable again too. Like he's, he's, he's like, awful. Yeah, he's an yeah. awful human being in that yeah. film. And, and that's the thing, like you've got all this kind of glitz and glam of um, the sort of Hollywood music era, but you've also got this really dirty love story as well too. It's like it's a nasty love story. Yeah, the two which is kind characters. of jarring. There's yeah. again, there's a discordancy there in terms of what. He's trying to do. I mean, speaking of De Niro playing unpleasant characters, like Scorsese's next film in 1980, Raging Bull, yeah. is an incredibly unpleasant character. Like, and like, also the inception of the Pesci. Yeah. I, again, I, I think Raging Bull for me has always sort of sat secondary to Taxi Driver as yeah, a sort of you know deconstruction of its central character. But it's one of those films, again, you can kind of go back to and it really does give you something every time you go to it. It's an incredibly textured film. Um, you know, one of my favourite little anecdotes, I think it, I, I learned from the, the Criterion Laserdisc, which laser I, disc. I took out from my uh, well university. Um, but like they put like a flame bar underneath the camera lens um, for some of the Sugar Ray Leonard stuff okay. uh, to give it this kind of warped look on camera. And those sort of like nifty camera tricks that only Scorsese could come up with, you know. Yeah, Raging Bull. I've got a weird relationship with Raging Bull. I, I've never truly connected with it mm. as a film or, or really e even enjoyed it. I, I appreciate everything that's going on. I think the, the craft that, that Scorsese kind of deploys in Raging Bull is amazing. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's undoubtedly influential in mm. terms of what he does in that film. I yeah. mean, technically, it's it's stunning to watch. And the craft of De Niro's acting is it's, is amazing too. It, but I keep coming back to the, just the unpleasantness yeah. of, of the central character the, in the you film. You know, Lamotta is a, a tough guy to go on a journey with. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's hard to feel sympathy for him. I think he's, even in his worst scenes, Travis Bickle, you feel some empathy for yeah, yeah, you feel sorry a little bit. You, you pity yeah. Travis Bickle to a degree, but you yeah. don't pity Jake no. Lamotta in, in Raging Bull. No, you, I mean, you're he's, literally he's watching a, a man destroy his own yeah. life, um, which is also a, a, a really interesting thing to watch unfold. But yeah, it's it's not one of those films that I go back to regularly, but yeah. I, I, I think it's one of those films that, again, needs to be in a filmography because it's really interesting because it, it's, it's, it's almost sort of like the ultimate full stop on his seventies flawed male, uh, syndromes. Is. And yeah. then his 80s stuff goes into this weird mode with, well, with his males. He, he like, hit a really weird period post raging yeah. bull. He, he spent a lot of time after raging bull trying to get last temptation of Christ up. And that didn't happen until much later in the eighties. And it was, I think a really, really depressive time for him. Yep. And it took three years for him to get his next film kind of 
out. Yeah. And the next film was The King of Comedy, yeah. which itself is a, a stunningly depressing film. <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's a film that I think I think it's amazing. I think it's one of Scorsese's best films, without a doubt. Yeah. But it is a, a genuinely bizarre and and I guess frequently unpleasant film still too. But yeah. it's got this comedic backbone, yeah. even though Scorsese. Adamantly says it's not a comedy. He does yeah. not refer to the King of Comedy as a comedy. No. But looking back, the King of Comedy to me is a precursor to a lot of modern day comedy, like The Office or like yeah. Larry David. Yeah, just like say, yeah. That, that yeah. comedy of absolute discomfort and awkwardness. Is, a comedy yeah, of awkwardness, yeah. which is really yeah. popular these days. It's yeah. a huge thing. Mm. And before the King of Comedy, that didn't exist. Yeah. Like so, I, I think he really pioneered something huge with the King of Comedy. And also looking at Jerry Lewis in that role too. Of, of this weird sort of pastiche of himself yes, um, is really interesting because, you know, if you, if you kind of come at Jerry Lewis through the sort of, you know, disorderly, orderly, nutty professor sort of thing, you, like it's 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 an amazing... He's got an amazing career, Jerry Lewis. Like, uh, But this is just so bizarre that this, this, this kind of connection between... Uh, Rupert Pupkin and and, and Jerry yes. in the film is just so it's it's an incredibly meta film before I think that word was created. Oh, it is, and and yeah. I think that it's interesting that Scorsese was suffering a huge bout of depression while making the King of Comedy mm. because you can feel it. It's it's visually, I think, one of his most anomalous films. Mm. It, it's it doesn't have that kinetic camera work or that sharp no. editing that a lot of his other films have. Mm. A lot of scenes take place in in just locked down yep. wide shots. Yep. And interestingly enough, after its Cannes premiere mm. in 1983, Sergio Leone came up to Scorsese mm. and complimented him on the King Comedy as his most mature film. Which well, Sergio, Scorsese, Sergio loves a lock-off. Yeah, he, he yeah, loves yeah, a locked yeah. camera there. <laughs> so, and, yeah. But I, I think that Scorsese was a bit kind of taken aback by that because... Mm he didn't feel at all like it was that to him. He felt it was almost this film that he needed to exercise and get through, well, it's but it wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah, because it's interesting. Like I think that the, the, the camera movement in that film really amps up the awkwardness too, because, I mean, there's this, there's this really nifty little scene where there's a, like some someone's knocking on the door to, to Jerry's house and they're trying to get in and Jerry Lewis is actually holding the doorknob on the other one and they can't get in like <laughs> it's just this is like really just like stuff you're kind of watching unfold on screen and go what is happening here um, I should before we go we delve further into the 80s one of the ones I definitely want to touch on for the 70s that we, we, we only touched on is, is The Last Waltz well which, yeah I mean we, we haven't kind of Scorsese had a huge documentary career. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And he's made a lot of docos in a throughout his entire career. And, and that's Obviously a-, a cameraman and editor of on, on early Woodstock yeah. stuff. But I just, um, for, for me, the, the, the last waltz is the absolute mic drop on, uh, and I know I've been using that phrase a lot, but I really, <laughs> for me, it's a very Scorsese thing to do. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the last waltz is an immaculate piece of filmmaking. Um, it's transcendent. I think in a way, uh, I, I first saw that when I was definitely into like Neil Young, uh, Van yeah. Morris and Bob Dylan, I never really heard of the band very much. And, and anyone who's a music fan, I think will get something out of that film. Like it, it is a absolute cornerstone on, on music filmmaking and, and having the little sort of vignettes of talking to the band post the, uh, the last waltz for anyone who hasn't seen the last waltz, the last waltz was effectively the final performance, uh, by the band, uh, which, you know, you would know saying the weight, uh, the night they drove old Dixie down and they were, uh, an iconic seventies Americana yeah. band. Uh, and again, you don't immediately think of Scorsese with that sort of like, 
Americana folk, sort of like or neo folk, as it was sort of referred to, that kind of Laurel Canyon vibe with, yep. with Joni Mitchell. But look, I think it's it's, it's an absolutely marvelous piece of work, and you know, to watch it, it opens with a fantastic title card. This film needs to be played loud, <laughs> and, and, and that's every Scorsese film. I think I think that needs to to to, to be in front of every film he, he makes. So I agree. But, um, yeah. Well, and he made a couple of I think another a few other key music documentaries that mm. he made, kind of. Later on, he made a, a really wonderful Bob Dylan documentary yep. called No Do- No Direction Home, Home. Yep. and then he made the George Harrison. Yes, yes, the, the four-hour yes. George Harrison sort of uh, really look at his existence, and I mean, it, it's great when he kind of touches on these these central characters and these sort of central mythic characters. You know, what I mean, because for I know that George Harrison and Bob Dylan are real life people, but for me, you know, they always approach them as sort of mythological characters. I mean, yes. they, they are these sort of like, you know, uh, practitioners of, you can't imagine that people created this sort of content. I mean, they, they, they're just the, the sort of mythic people, very similar to the way Scorsese viewed uh, Muddy Waters yeah. uh, when, when he filmed it for The Last Waltz. But I mean, look, uh, Scorsese's also tried to recapture The Last Waltz magic with the Rolling Stones concert film, Shine a Light. Not so great. Not so great. Not no. so great. But no, no, look, for a concert film, and I think concert films are uh, really are a lost art form. They do not get made properly anymore and I think The Last Waltz is one of them that is really just a, a cornerstone of that genre um, Ted Demi's uh, sorry uh, Jonathan Demi's uh, Stop Making Sense yes. is also one of those I, I'm really excited to talk about After Hours, actually, because yeah. After Hours is my favourite Scorsese film, my yep. personal favourite, and yep. he made it two years after The King of Comedy, and he, again, was kind of stuck in development hell still mm. with Last Temptation of Christ, and he was really kind of stressed out yep. at that point in time, and he decided to make After Hours as this kind of independent guerrilla film mm. shot for a really low budget, mm. shot really quickly, yep. and shot on the streets of New York, and it was kind of this reversion back to the days of Taxi Driver and Mean Streets where he could just make a film really quickly on the streets of New York and After Hours to me is a truly brilliant film it's Mm. it's, I think it pioneers a type of black comedy Mm. that no one really had done well up to that point and I'd argue no one has done well since no it's singular in that respect I mean it's incredibly punk rock film it's so punk yeah, yeah um, it's super punk you know and he was obviously Scorsese obviously he's on record as being a huge punk fan as well too but I mean for Christ's sake this is the Scorsese Cheech and Chong film well yeah I, I mean, mean you know, Cheech like, and Chong is yeah. like a, a major character yeah, in this film like, and just the whole I mean, again the way the camera operates and the way the sort of central character is just consistently sort of brought into this sort of like vice like state where you know even up to the end of the film he's getting covered in um, paper mache. Well, I mean, know, it's yeah. just an insane the, arc. The energy of the film is amazing, especially in contrast to The King of Comedy, which mm. came prior, yeah. which again, like I said, was was very locked down formally and, yeah. and very restrained. After Hours is as 
far opposite yeah. that as you can get. We've yeah. got cameras just flying around left, right, and center, whip pans, smash cuts. He pulls every technique out in the book, and it's just this really kinetic, dark story about a guy getting trapped in Soho and not being yeah. able to get out. Oh, and everyone's had one of those nights. Well, that's you the know, thing, and that's why uh, yeah, I, I love yeah. that idea. Anytime, ever since I, I see After Hours so many times, like I, it's it's the film that I would watch probably once a year, yeah, and yeah. and every time I see it, I, I think about those moments where you're stuck in the city and I, can't I get a cab at three a.m. and generally you just can't feel get home. like I'm like, stuck in Soho mentally most nights. Yeah, well, so it's, it's um, amazing, yeah. and and I think there's a lot of there's this kind of freshness and energy that kind of infused his filmmaking with After Hours. And he had some crazy ideas. Like my kind of favorite story about After Hours is this point where they, they were shooting the film and they had no ending. They were, they really didn't know how the film was going to end. And the, the producers really started getting on his back going, you need to sort an ending for this film out. And the original ending that the writer suggested at that point was this bizarrely surrealistic ending where the main character crawls into the womb of a woman that he's dancing with at the end only to get birthed out onto the streets of New York in the morning in, with all this like birth like juice birth stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and people just said no Marty you can't yeah. do that yeah. you can't end your film like that yeah. so he started test screening the film to friends around Hollywood and yeah. he showed it to Michael Powell yeah. the classic filmmaker A Matter of Life and Death The Red the Shoes The Arches Michael, Michael Powell. Powell and Michael Powell was the one that suggested that the film end on this kind of Kafkaesque nightmare of mm. him just ending up back in front of his workplace yeah. at the point the next morning where his job starts again. Yeah. And he test run it with some other friends like Spielberg yeah. and they all went, yeah, no, yeah. you should end it like that. Yeah. And that's how the ending of that film evolved. And it's really funny that it evolved that way because to me, it is the most perfect ending to yeah. the film. I get excited no. every time I see, yeah. you see this character go through this nightmarish whirlwind. I need to get spat yeah. out. Right at 9 a.m. as his job starts Starts, again the next morning. Then next Friday's on the horizon. It's it's, it's so perfect. I I adore After Hours. I think it's a a really brilliant film. Totally. Um, No, it's definitely out there. Interesting that that was followed up with The Colour of Money. Well, yeah, Paul Uh, Newman was uh, the one that kind of tapped Scorsese on the shoulder and went, hey, I want you to do this. I always feel like these iconic directors and, you know, any one of our generation or other generations of film fans, I think, knows the the sort of canonistic directors. You know, you've got your Kubricks, uh, you've got your your Lynches in a way, and they all have done a studio pick for hire in a way. You know, Kubrick had Spartacus, uh, I feel that Lynch had Dune. Um, to varying levels of success. This, for me, was one of the first, and Scorsese has had a few more in his he, career. He peppers them, he comes yeah. in and out. This yeah. is, for me, though, is the first one, I think. Yeah. Um, look, I actually, I have a, a severe soft spot for Colour of Money. Really? Cool. I, 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 I don't I, mind it. I, I think it's a fine film. It's the perfect film you can put on a sort of visual wallpaper. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's cool soundtrack. Cruise is actually really... I mean, it, it's, it's that... Cruise is, yeah. It's, it's that charisma cruise uh, period. It's the epicenter of, of the charm. Yeah. Like when, yeah. yeah, he actually... There was screen energy there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a real ferocity to it. Um, and I like... I Look, I like The Hustler as well too. So it, it's interesting to go back to a character with a different viewpoint uh, from a different director. So, yeah. Well, and I think he needed to do The Colour of Money because it enabled him to finally get off the ground a film that he'd been trying to get off the ground for probably a decade and yeah. that's The Last Temptation of Christ which is to my money 
probably the strangest it's... Hollywood produced film yep. that I've seen in the last kind of 30 or 40 years. It's it's really stunning that he even got this film made. Ma- I don't think yeah. you could get a film no. like this made no. today no. with studio money the way he did. I no mean, way. you might be able to get 10, 15 million dollars independently produced, yep. but what studio is going to pay to make a film like this today? And just the cast in it too is astounding. Like it's such a huge ensemble cast, but just the tone of the film is also incredibly odd. It's, to, it's, for lack of a better term. Well, like, it's, it's yeah. uncompromising. Yeah. I mean, he, Scorsese made a lot of really interesting and strange decisions with The Last Temptation of Christ. One of my kind of favourite ones is is his choice to have all his actors speak in their natural accents. Yes, which so I he, think is so... I mean, it, it's essentially like Mean Streets. It is. Way. Well, I mean, you've it, got it, Harvey it, Cartel yeah, yeah. here in Last Temptation of Christ yeah. talking with a New York accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. In, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 2,000 I mean, years it's, ago. It's, it's, it's like, you know, this is just another story in the Bronx, you know. And yeah. Like, yeah um, and that's that. It's a great idea yeah, and it, it works. It, it does. It creates this kind of really interesting class strata. I mean, he still has the kind of the Romans speaking in a British accent, which yeah. is Hollywood code for, for the kind of arrogant top upper class. Yeah. But yeah, by kind of adding that accent strata, it. it yeah, it creates yeah. this kind of mean streets in yeah. Jerusalem vibe. And I think the Peter Gabriel score is, you know, something that's kind of lived on as well. So I think the film has kind of fallen into obscurity a little bit with, with, with some maybe more modern viewers. I don't know if they've kind of gone this far back into the kind of era of his career. Uh, yeah, I think like films like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, a lot of people will be aware of and, and have rewatched. Well, but I, think I don't know many people that have watched I Last think because Christ. like a lot of Scorsese gets taught in universities, and rightfully so, but they completely skip over his 80s filmography. Yes. And they go straight into the next film, which is, of course, Goodfellas. Which... In in all fairness, is it's one of the greatest films of all time. Incredible! It, it's, uh, yeah. it to me, Goodfellas is film school in it's, two and a half hours. It's, it's it's every technique of cinema you yeah. could ever want to learn. This is how to tell a story. This is every mode of a story. Yeah. It deconstructs a multi act structure in a really interesting way. Yeah. It is a, a film that I can watch at it's, any uh, point in time. Yeah. If you start Goodfellas, I'm going to sit down and watch it. Like it's it's catnip to me. It's it's I mean. It is incredible the way that, I mean, this is a, a film that goes for over two hours, but it feels like it goes for five minutes. It flies. Uh, fl- and, and they cover so much territory in it, and the soundtrack is incredible. I mean, look, anyone who's a lover of film should have seen this film, and anyone that is a lover of film doesn't need us to tell us how good it is. I mean, it is it is just an immaculate piece of filmmaking. And, yeah. and, and, and Ray Liotta, I don't think, has ever been better. No, in a, um, no, he hasn't. Yeah, um, and that's, I mean, and it's amazing that it well, came so think, early in his career. I don't think Pesci's been better. No, I mean, the, the the irony is that Pesci has constantly, since this point, been doing an impersonation of that role. That's yeah, it's interesting. He kind of has. I mean, you could see even at Home Alone, Pesci's just, just Pesci is just like a, a more like tamed version of uh, of Nicky. Pesci yeah, going yeah, to Macaulay Culkin yeah, so, like, am, yeah, I, am, yeah. I, am, I, am I a clown yeah. to you? Yeah. Yeah, like I think Goodfellas is is a, a stunning film, and I think it is kind of one of Scorsese's crowning achievements. Mm. I, I think that formally and technically, what he achieves in it is mm. is magnificent. And yeah. like you said, the pacing of it is is so pitch perfect, and it's got one of my favorite endings of all time. Yeah. Like it just has a really amazing, bitter, cynical yeah. snap of an ending, dropping to kind of Sid Vicious's version of My Way. Yeah. It's just... And also really so kind perfect. of... It, it also, that ending, uh, and I'm, I'm assuming that most people that are listening to this would have seen it, or if not, will you know, be familiar with it. Um, you know, it, it basically jumps back to Pesci's character 
Tommy in it, who you assume has been, you know, knocked off yes. throughout the half of the film. But it is just, it's assuming that you can understand the sort of visual language that Leota's Henry Hill is just going to get knocked. It's around the corner. That death is around the corner for him at any time. And well, it's really clever in the way that it gives the viewer that sort of like, you know, because I mean, a lot of people go, well, hang on, that character died or whatever. But no, it, it, it's yeah. an incredibly literate film. And we haven't even touched on, I mean, its legacy in terms of The Sopranos and, 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 and that oh. sort of thing. I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of part and parcel in that respect. Well, so. I mean, and, and again, speaking of kind of the, that final shot, the, the Joe Pesci shooting a gun to the mm. screenshot, I mean, mm. that is, again, taps into Scorsese's film literacy. And yeah, like, well, that's well, a reference the to great the train Great Train Robbery, yeah. which is like, a classic shot of cinema of someone shooting a gun towards the screen. I mean, Scorsese knows what he's doing and he kind of, it's something that everyone thinks of as, as, as a Tarantino thing Mm. that in terms of referencing and, and, and tapping into film history, but Scorsese did it in a more comprehensive way before Tarantino even came along. And and uh, these references weren't arch when Scorsese was doing it. They weren't empty. They were wholly realized and functional to the film as well as kind of building up on a hundred years of film history up to that point. And I think Goodfellas is, yeah, I think Goodfellas is the, the, one of the peaks of his oh, career. You, you, yeah, and I think also, and, and this is not to sound too overtly kind of laudatory, but I think it is one of the peaks of, of our generation of filmmaking. I mean, I think, no, I, wouldn't, I, yeah, I, don't, I, wouldn't I can't disagree. think of a film that kind of touches on that. Well, level. I mean, and it, the very next year, he followed it up with a, a studio, another studio picture. Yep. Uh, and this was Cape Fear. The fade to red. The fade <laughs> up to red. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm quite... I, I, I think there's a few things in Cape Fear that I really I love. I think that he pulled off some really cool stuff in it. Oh, the fact that it's got Mitchum and Peck in it. Yeah. As sort of well, like weird ciphers the of the previous... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think like that's really intelligent. Uh, obviously, De Niro... You know his next level method acting in it. You know, like he's real, like he's like this weird sort of like devilish foghorn leghorn. It's, it's, it's like, a Nicolas Cage level De Niro. Yeah, it's really. And I, I, I mean, this is around the time too. If you think about De Niro's career, that he was playing like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as well. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a really interesting period of De Niro's on screen yeah. career, more so than what he's done subsequently. Well, but, I think when I ever think of Cape Fear, I think of that scene. With De Niro and Juliette Lewis, yeah, at the and, at, at the, uh, at the stage, you know, yes, yeah, yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, I just yeah. need to say that, and you know, exactly yeah. the scene I'm talking about, yeah. and and I think that that is one of those things where in a in a major studio picture that he was just doing to kind of please the powers that be, mm. he was still pushing things in in really really confrontational it's, ways. That's a disturbing scene. It's a really off putting film, Kate Fear. Like in a lot of ways, uh, it is. It, yeah. It's really, um, and it has, I think, one of the the, the, the really early. Um, De Niro uh, or Scorsese character does a chest press in prison. Yes. That's a recurring thing in a Scorsese film, the chest press in prison. And um, the Simpsons have, have yeah, done some yeah, very, yeah. very good recalls. They have, they have. Sideshow Bob, indeed, I must say. Indeed. Um, and, then, well, and then after Cape Fear, we got The Age of Innocence, yeah. which is in some ways, I guess, one of his most anomalous films, although it kind of makes sense in terms of what he's doing. Yeah, look, I mean, I think, again, it's one of those films that I, I saw upon its release and I, I don't think I've watched it in full again since. Um, it, it does feel like, you know, you've got all those sort of, like, Scorsese neuroses in it. Yeah. And the sort of, like, you know, um, class structure commentary. Yes. But it just... it 
it feels that Age of Innocence for me is a film that feels like it has no air. Okay, like it's it, yeah. it's an incredibly stuffy film. What's well, interesting because you could say the same thing about Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, totally, which was totally Kubrick's again period film. Yep. It's it feels like again the same way that. Scorsese needed to do New York, New York. Yep. He needed to do The Age of Innocence. Yep. He wanted to do a, a period picture and he wanted to explore that. And I think that there's some great cinema in oh, The Age look, of Innocence. Oh, look, there's some beautiful there's some, photography there's in some, it. And yeah, there's some amazing yeah. storytelling moments. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is a bit stuffy for me and yeah. it, it doesn't really kind of connect with the energy of his other stuff. And yeah. what is more fascinating to me is the fact that he followed that up with Casino. Mm. He kind of... There was this... Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino, Sandwich with The Age of Innocence, which is like a G-rated film, film. just in the middle there. Yeah, to go from Cape Fear to Casino with Age of Innocence in the middle is... is, To talk about Scorsese's Catholic guilt. Do you love it? Because a lot of people consider Casino as a Goodfellas light retread. No, I I think it's a it's you know there was an interesting kind of commentary that came out uh, and we and we touched on Tarantino briefly about and we should note that this was 1995 now and and which was a year after Pulp Fiction came out so we're in the Tarantino world World, now so Scorsese's aware of this movement of Tarantino post Pulp Fiction so he Uh, goes back to his gangster. And he also recalls, I think, you know, sort of some of his heritage in that regard too. But I also think it's it's just an interesting point if you look at something like Django Unchained and Hateful Eight, which are like two flip sides of the same coin. Yeah. For me, Goodfellas and Casino are the same, are flip side of the same coin. And you're looking at the sort of regret and bittersweet commentary on these lives of these mobsters that are just they just don't work like they just they they and you know and I think that the the the, the perfect ending of Casino is just like with um, Ace Ross being played by De Niro and he goes and that's it and that's the end of the film like <laughs> there's no like, that's it uh, yeah. like I didn't die everyone else did that's it well I think like, they- I, it's just so bittersweet and so sort of like. What was the point of all that? I mean, it kind of even recalls the sort of like, you know, ending of Fargo in some ways too. It's like, yeah. what was all this for? Like, you know, it's this sprawling epic uh, which starts out with like, you know, the high strings of St. Matthew's Passion with like someone falling madman style through the, the lights of um, uh, Las Vegas. And it ends on an old man sitting here with big glasses going, and that was that. Doesn't I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just a, it's a, and it's an amazing sort of comment on the, the futile nature of organized crime and just, you know, how, you know, no one wins a, and a great analogy for, for, for Las Vegas too, you know, it's just, it, for yeah. me, it's a real, it's, it's always going to live in the shadow of Goodfellas. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not a, it's not a better film than it's Goodfellas. It's not a better too. film, but I think yeah. it, it, it's an incredible kind of 
counteract. To, 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 it's a counterweight to, well, yeah. to Goodfellas' ferocity. Yeah. This has got this real sort of like slow. I mean, I mean, it's a long film. This is a three-hour film we're talking. Well, yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is one of his longest films yeah. until well, until Wolf of Wall Street. I think it's, yeah. I think it might be still longer than by a minute no, or just, two just longer yeah, than yeah, yeah. Wolf it's of Wall long. Street. It's a long film. What always struck me about Casino was that Scorsese kind of really started pushing in Goodfellas that narration montage <laughs> aesthetic that he, he yeah, really kind of yeah. has pushed through all his career yeah. and, and it's one of my favourite things about Scorsese's yeah. ability to kind of tell story in this really visual way yeah. Casino pushes it to I think that I think everyone has a, everyone has an everyone's a narrator in Casino well, like, it's yeah. the first 30 minutes of the film yeah. is all narration yep. there's there's no single scenes yep. at all it's, it's narration and montage and it, and it jumps between different narrators too yep. and in so it just is like it's a really complex formal exercise, I think. And yeah. what he does in it is incredibly impressive. Yeah. And I love watching the first 30 or 40 minutes of Casino. Mm. But I get a bit bored after that. Yeah. And and I think that whereas Goodfellas, I can just... I'm locked in and it's on the second it starts. Yeah. Yeah, Casino has a stunning first 30 or 40 minutes. Yeah. And then it just kind of dulls out yeah. for me. It's still an amazing film, and yeah. I can still, I still I love it. it but yeah. yeah, soundtrack is incredible as well too. I mean, it's, it's uh, a again soundtrack, perhaps not on the level of Goodfellas, but you know, it's um the whole sequence which is set to House of the Rising Sun towards the end yes. is is really quite impressive. Uh, following on that, we get into another interesting period though, like the the late nineties period of, yeah. of of Marty with uh, so Kundun. Kundun. I don't like Kundun. Really? No, I don't really. I I don't like it. <laughs> I just, I you know I I you doing uh, you doing I'm just doing a dinero thing. Yeah, like, I, I don't like Kundun. I, like, um, I, like I think it's an I think it's a very important story, and I think it's a story that obviously needed to be showcased. Yeah, but I just again I I you know I, I it just reeks of stuffiness. Like I think the, the it just the film is boring to me. I feel like I I just struggle to get through it every time I've yeah. I, I've, and I've tried to go cuz I honestly always think no I'm missing something here. Yeah. I should I should I should be appreciating this more. But I just I, I visually splendid performance is great, but there's just this again it, it doesn't feel like there's an immediacy to it. No. But I think that when Marty's on point there's this real immediacy to his storytelling that yeah. I think is not there in Kundun. I'd, I'd agree with that. And it's really interesting, again, that two years later, he followed up with Bringing Out the Dead, yeah. which... Which I think is a really interesting film. <laughs> so, I don't yeah. just think it's interesting. I yeah, kind of yeah. love Bringing Out the Dead. Yeah. I, I think that Bringing Out the Dead is this awesome revisit to Taxi Driver. Yeah. It's, it's kind of over 20 years later, yeah. and Paul Schrader, again, yeah. wrote the screenplay. And it's, it's Taxi Driver crossed with After Hours in a way that I think so it, it to me is incredibly exciting. And I think that mm. bringing out the dead mm. is probably Scorsese's most underrated film. Totally. In his entire like, career. No, like, I totally agree with that. It, it, it really has dropped off people's radar. That film. Yeah. Like, it, I it, mean, it, we, you mentioned because, that with, with, yeah. you know, things like last temptation of Christ, but I think that with bringing out the dead, it's, yeah. it's really yeah. crazy that yeah. people don't talk about this film. No, I think bringing out the dead hasn't got any of the sort of politics or controversy of, of last temptation of Christ. And it doesn't have the kind of flashiness of some of his other films. It's got a crazy Nicholas Cage performance. Uh, and this is the time where Cage was 
you know, before what <laughs> Nicholas Cage has sort of become like, you know, meme fodder. Yeah. Uh, he like this is like post leaving Las Vegas sort of Cage. Um, really impressive performance by Patricia Arquette as well, uh, as well as Ving Rhames. Tom Sizemore Tom Rames si- is, so Tom is fucking awesome in this movie, and there is an amazing sequence uh, to have set to a, a Van Morrison track, uh, TB Sheets. Which is just, it's just fantastic, you know, going around the town with this sort of like uh, neon uh, ambulance paramedic light while Scorsese is the dispatch voice on the radio. Like, yeah, it's, but it's a gritty film. Like it's a dirty film. Like it may, it, it's really, it's a sweaty film. You know, you can kind of it's, feel the kind of griminess of New yeah, York City. Yeah, like, uh, it's got that kind of visceralness, but I, I also, it's got, uh, I don't want to say. Levity, because it's 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 definitely a serious film. No, but a reasonably just, dark film. But it's got a lot more comedy in it than yeah. you would think. Like no, there, talk, there's the, some magnificent comedic sequences yeah. in it, and I think that well, the Ving Rhames stuff. As you said, there's this great oh. sequence, and they go in and they go into this club where you know, oh, and they, and they yeah. pretend to kind of revive a guy, yeah, yeah through spiritual means when yeah. they're just yeah using kind of yeah ambulance. Yeah, I just it's it's amazing. Yeah. Like and the, I, I agree. There's a, there, there is a levity to it, but also there's this weird kind of ethereal quality to it too, where the film just feels like it's hovering in this sort of like ether. Which yeah. for for all the characters who are, you know, experiencing some sort of substance abuse or, or some sort of like you know insomnia or something, it's it's it, it, it's a head trip of a film. Well, there's a lot more redemption in it, I yeah. think, than and 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 as this kind of interesting polarity to Taxi Driver and with Paul Schrader, but Schrader writing both of those films, and I, I feel like both Scorsese and Schrader over 20 years later, feel a bit more positive yep. than maybe their kind of cynical 30s totally. drug-addled depressiveness yep. was. Yep. I feel like with Bringing Out the Dead, they're older and there's a little bit of hope and light and redemption totally. in Bringing Out the yep. Dead, which, yeah, I think it's a perfect film for this point in Scorsese's career. Yep. I, I think that it's a really wonderful film and it's, again, sad that you get this ping-pong with his kind of filmography yep. That three years later, we got Gangs of New York. And I, I remember sitting in the theatre with Gangs of New York. Which, which was Scorsese's, one of his passion projects. I he spent like, years trying to get this, this film off the be, ground. This is going to be interesting. The opening, the opening of Gangs of New York is something. Like that, oh, like the big fight. The, the big fight. Um, but it's yeah. not even that. It's like the walking through the tunnels of that yeah. ragtime um, whistle music. And then it just... It, it completely falls on top of its face. I mean, and it's what's going to, I think, you know, and this is my opinion, it's what's going to happen when Terry Gilliam ever gets... Does the man d- who killed Don Quixote? Don Quixote on screen. Um, yeah, I, there are certain films that just, I don't know if the, the, the ideas are, are, are bigger than the form. Well, and it's also that, I think it's the curse of the passion project. Yeah. It's that film that a filmmaker has spent 10, 20, 30 years trying to make. Yeah. And... Ended with a fucking U two song. Well, I mean, they, they've know, overthought just, it. They've, yeah. And admittedly, I know that there was a lot of production problems, and I know that Scorsese had his battles with the Weinstein's yep. in terms of getting the right cut. And there was a lot of problems with this film in its in every aspect. But I, I also think that if you removed all those kind of hurdles that he faced. I still think that there isn't a great film in here. I think it's just no, one it's, of those overthought passion yeah. projects. And I'm like you I think the Gilliam thing's a good comparison. I always fear yeah. when fear filmmakers the trying project. to Yeah, when they finally get that project that they've been working on for twenty years up, it's just like ah, uh, it just it rarely works. Big fan of Daniel Day Lewis in the film though. He is amazing. He is amazing. I'll, I'll pay yeah, that. Definitely. And an interesting sort of like precursor to his performance in There Will Be Blood, but that's a different that's a different yeah. tangent. Thank you.
also think the Gangs of New York really began, I think, a, a really dire period for Scorsese in the yeah. early 2000s. I, I, I think The Aviator is a really weak film. Yeah, it's, no. Look again, it's a bit again, of a, it's a nothing film. Technically to me. interesting the way it has sort of matched film stocks of that Hollywood era. Uh, technically, uh, there's some yeah. fascinating stuff uh, as always. I mean, production design's great yeah. in it, but it, it again, it's it's a stifling film. Like it's it, yeah. the, 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 what's the old adage from the blues? But there's no action in this keyboard. Well, it's, there's it's, no yeah. action in the aviator. It's not it's a like, it's, it's not a well conceived yeah. film. Yeah. I think on a narrative level, and. Again, the film that he made after that, The Departed, yep. which is a remake of a Korean film called Infernal Affairs. Yep. I don't like The Departed. It's I'm going to come out and say, like, I really don't like it. I don't think it's a good film. And I think that it's actually some of Scorsese's weakest craftsmanship in it as yep. well. I think that a lot of the formal elements of it are rough and choppy and ill yep. thought through. Yep. I don't think The Departed is a good film. I well, It's interesting you mentioned that because... I knew we were going to be recording this and I was trying to think of things that I could be critical of Scorsese about because I am like I, I, I do love his <laughs> I do love his films yeah. I when I first saw The Departed I came out of the cinema going that was fucking awesome and I saw it again and I went uh, yeah it's it, there's if you it, it, as a as a as a sort of like bombastic sort of chest beating experience the Departed, I think, has some some interesting things in it, like you know, listen to the Dropkick Murphys while there's fucking yeah. things. Yeah, like yeah, there, yeah. there's there there is some real sort of like you know, really kind of heavy hitting filmmaking in it in some regards, but it's completely hollow. Like there, there there's nothing going on in that film. It's it's in, like you know it's it's it. But I, I always really struggle with the last shot of the film where it's sort of like a rat looking over the church as you're like, oh, oh for yeah. Christ's sake. You know, it's just like, it's just, yeah, it, 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 I think, you know, Leo's really good in it and it, as we should have probably mentioned, Gangs in New York was, was the first of the films where uh, uh, Marty's found his uh, sort of modern muse. New, new, new De Niro. Uh, yeah. When, yeah. And I think Leo has progressively gotten better uh, in indeed. every film that he's yeah. been with with Scorsese. So. Well, it, it, and, and I, for me, Shutter Island, mm. the film after Departed, was when I finally kind of saw the first great Leonardo DiCaprio Scorsese performance. Yep. I'm a huge fan of Shutter Island. Yeah, I really like Shutter Island too. I, I yeah. know that a lot of people don't like Shutter Island. I feel like it's potentially a misunderstood film. Yeah, I think, you know, if we talk about Scorsese as a sort of, you know, um, film archivist in a way, this, this this feels like something that you would have seen as a, a late, 40s, early 50s noir, a little bit amped, a little bit yeah. amped up. It's got, in, it's with got the gore strong and, and gothic qualities to it too. God, it, you know, yeah. really kind of reminds me of like stuff like Gaslight. Yeah, and it's like it's yeah. just kind of like that that kind of like foreboding noir. Uh, I'm so. a big fan of films where there's external forces driving the main character insane. Yeah, and I think that Shutter Island is is a beautiful example of that type of story. Yeah. Also, I think a lot of people criticize Shutter Island for this. Final acts exposition sequence yeah. where a, a character kind of seemingly sits down and explains everything that's going on. But I mean, that's that's the end of Psycho. Yeah, but uh, I think the weird thing is that when I watch Shutter Island and I get to that scene, I don't feel like it's black and white exposition. I still feel like that's part... Maybe it's because I'm so caught up in everything yeah. that's gone on up to that point, but I feel like there's still conspiratorial plot in yeah. that it's almost kind of like well, it goes back to the Scorsese paranoia factor right? yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and so for me that big expository sequence that for a lot of people lets the air out of the film mm. to me that just ramps up the tension mm. because I'm 
I, every time, and I've seen it several times, and I still feel the same way when I see that big exposition sequence. I feel like, but is it the truth? Yeah. Oh, and, it's a circle and, within a circle yeah. within another circle. And, right? and, yeah. and I don't feel like it's just, here's the explanation to the film. I feel like it's, here's an explanation to the film. Yeah. But, but is it still part of the conspiracy yeah. plot? And I and if you watch it with that frame, it's oh, an incredibly it's... tense ending to I think a really well realized film. And again, um, I think brilliantly performed as you said, Ruffalo is great in it as well. Uh, but it just it's a it's a creepy film. It's a very creepy. Yeah, film. it's a creepy. It's, film. I, I think it's 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 Scorsese's only true horror film. Yeah, totally. Like totally. Uh, I think yeah. you know, Cape Fear is more of a thriller. I think yeah. that Shutter Island is a horror it's, it's film. A ju- it's got some good jump scares in it. Yeah, so, yeah, and. Then his next film, which is his first digital film, yeah, and his first three D film, yep. Hugo, which you know, look, I think it's a very pleasant film. A lot of people um, liked it when it came yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, I think and the three D in it is pretty impressive as well. The three D strong, um, but yeah, look again, I think a bit of a love letter to uh, yeah. an era of cinema which not many people may be familiar with on mass. And I felt I felt like the charm of Hugo wore off very quickly. I think yeah. when it came out, a lot of people kind of fell in love with it, but mm. really, I don't. Think well, I, Hugo I've has not legs. Seen it? No, I saw it in the cinema. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, the, the the ping pong aspect of his recent career. We got the Wolf of Wall Street in 2013, which I I love. I love, and I I recently rewatched it, and it's it's really good. It like the, it yeah, holds up. It really does. Um, like I think that the Wolf of Wall Street is a really important film in Scorsese's career. I think it creates. There's this really interesting through line from Goodfellas to Casino to Wolf of Wall Street. I I think they are very similar films, all three films. And like you drew that through line from Goodfellas to Casino, I think you can kind of add another step to The Wolf of Wall Street. And The Wolf of Wall Street is basically this film where the characters live in the shadow of those other films. Mm. So the characters in The Wolf of Wall Street think of themselves as characters in the Goodfellas, yeah. except they're in the stock market. Yeah. And oh, they, they're legitimate. Yeah. They're not criminals. But they yeah. act like gangsters and yeah. they act like they're in Goodfellas. Yeah. And I think that The Wolf of Wall Street has one of Scorsese's best endings. Yeah. I think oh. it's an amazingly confrontational and on-point ending mm. that I think addresses not only all the moral questions that, that a lot of people threw up against Wolf of Wall Street, but I think it addresses a lot of questions on... Scorsese's entire career by just ending with this shot of an audience just staring straight back at you and it just asks you kind of like are are we entertaining you is this what you want is this what you have you enjoyed this film because if you have then you're complicit in everything that's been going on in this film and I think it's an amazing critique and and for a a film a late stage career film Mm -hmm. like that I think it's just amazing to see such a youthful, edgy, and uncompromising film to come out of a filmmaker at this later stage in his career. It, and it, it stunned me that he made it. And I think it's you know I, I know uh, Leo took home the uh, the Oscar for uh, a, another recent film, but uh, I, I think this is one of Leonardo DiCaprio's best performances. I think he is astounding in this film. He's um, so on point. Yeah, um, yeah. No, look, I, I I completely agree with everything you're saying. And again, just a, a great sort of pastiche of tone. And form and, and and everything you think a Scorsese film is going to be is in that film, but it never veers into self-parody. Yeah. So, and I, I think like we we can look forward to his next couple of films because we yeah. can definitely for sure we know what he's making. So his next film is a film called Silence. Yep. Which, again, I'm troubled to say is a passion it's project. It's been coming for some time. He's been trying to make this film for years. Yep. It's about 
Jesuit priests in Japan in the 17th century. I'm concerned, again, but only concerned simply because the passion projects simply haven't frequently worked out. It could be amazing. It sounds like a deeply strange film. So I'm I'm fascinated as to how it'll turn out. After that, though, we get a film called The Irishman, which reteams De Niro and Pesci and brings in Al Pacino for the first time. So we have Pacino, De Niro and Pesci. Hoo-ha! It's just, I, and again, I'm I'm deeply worried. Again, is this? I, is this, I mean, I mean, because we also haven't touched on in between all this. He also made a very expensive ad for a casino. The casino ad, the yes. casino ad, which is sort of like this weird pastiche of Ocean's Eleven by way of casino, by way of Goodfellas, by way of Wolf of Wall Street. Is that what we're going to get with the Irish? I don't. Are we going to get something between that and Games in New York? I, I don't know. Like, I'm, it, I'm very concerned. Yeah. I, I don't know what. He, it's a, it's, it's almost ex- like Celebrity Jeopardy by Scorsese. I mean, yeah. it's exciting to see Scorsese working with those three actors, oh. but I don't know. Can no. can it be good? Can that's, it be amazing? That's that's some severe weight that that film's got to work got, under. That's got like, some baggage. Yeah, I got to say. So. And one last thing I want to mention is um, a, a TV project that Scorsese yep. did that came out this year, yep. which was essentially a movie in and of itself. Mm. It was the two-hour pilot for Vinyl. Yep. Uh, uh, show produced by Mick Jagger, Scorsese, and Terence Winter. Who from also worked on Boardwalk Empire with yeah. Scorsese. Yep. And I think Vinyl, the two-hour pilot of Vinyl, which yep. Scorsese directed, I think outside of Wolf of Wall Street is, is one of the most interesting things that Scorsese's done in the last 15 years. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. It shows Scorsese experimenting in the field of kind of music and really evocative musical flows of a project in ways that... He's played with music throughout his whole career, but the yeah. way that he weaves in and out of, of surrealistic musical interludes in the vinyl pilot oh. is really amazing filmmaking. Oh, uh, look, and I think, you know, Bobby Cannavale is the, is oh, the, Bobby is, Cannavale. Is, is the requisite Scorsese paranoid central character in that. You know, he's just yeah. he's moving it a mile an hour. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, like, the coke adult uh, yeah. Liotta in Goodfellas, yes. but Cannavale has it's outdone just, him, yeah, yeah. like in terms of coke adult Scorsese yeah. protagonist. Yeah, like the, the the Carnavale neck vein <laughs> gets a massive play in in, uh, in uh, vinyl like that. That you can't, you oh, can't yeah. teach you, that. You, that, you do a line and you yeah, get that the, like the, kind the, of smash top down zoom on a character yeah. is like Carnavale shaking his head. It's like no one no one yeah. does that. No, no, and uh, certainly. Um, uh, for openers, one of the the most refreshing series openers I've seen for a while. Uh, so, yeah, um, I mean, re- regardless of what the show became yep. or, or anything or, else, or, or what it's going to do in the future, I think that the yeah. opening is as a, a two-hour yeah. mini film in and of itself. Very I think that there's some amazing work going on in that. Definitely. But I like thanks for talking. Talking oh, with I Zach always, about this. I love yeah. talking Marty. I'm, I'm gonna. It's, he's yeah. he's a great filmmaker to talk about. I'm gonna go and put on some uh, Dean Martin now. I think.
next podcast? Well, after an hour of chatting, I really don't feel like we even scratched the surface of Scorsese World. I hope we've reminded you, though, of some great films that you need to re-watch or maybe even track down and check out for the first time. Scorsese's films have mostly aged like cracker dynamite. They're still explosive and immediate 30 or 40 years down the line. So thanks for listening and stay tuned for another Parallax real soon.